0: Today's text is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The Word of God says this, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up, and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. So as um, I was preparing for um, this text and thinking about it, I was in Arizona visiting my brother and I was working on preparing another sermon that I preached last weekend at my parents' church and I was trying to figure out this text I was preaching at the other church and it it took a while to really figure out what the message of that was, uh, or what the really argument was being portrayed and then Z texted me with this text and I see that, It's a resurrection story, and so I was talking to the brother, and I was like, well, I can't really figure out what I'm preaching on the other text yet, but the one at Rua is resurrection, and like, that'll preach. And he said, he's like, do you really think you're going to preach the resurrection with that? And I was like, what do you mean I'm not going to preach the resurrection with this text? Um, And so I stand before you today, and I'm actually not preaching the resurrection with this text. Um, As ironic as it is, and of course, we will touch on the resurrection as very much a part of this text, but... um, I think there's a a far greater meaning and purpose to this text than just a resurrection of a widow's son. And there are some texts in Scripture that are hard texts, and there are some texts in Scripture that are hard to understand texts, and this is neither one of those. It is very straightforward, it is clear, um, and it has great truth for us that we don't have to dig super deep for that is just on the surface of it. And so we thank the Lord when we come to texts like this, that we don't have to dive and work through and really figure out what is being said that he says it very clearly here. R.C. Sproul says that uh, there's enough in this text to reveal Christ's sweetness, His excellency, His person, His power, and His saviorhood. That all other accounts of miracles of Christ could be done away with or forgotten or lost over time, but if we still had this one, it is enough to establish all of those principles about Christ's character. So this is a significant text, a great and a glorious text. And my hope is to show you all my cards right now as to what this text is saying and where we are going with it. And my hope is that everything I say tonight will point to that one meaning for this text. And it comes in verse 16, and it says this, God has visited His people. As we work through, we'll see that it might be a different inflection of what, how they respond in this time period, but its truth is still present today that God has visited His people, and in this text it's not by some great po- prophet or just a miracle, but by God's own divine Son. And this, this phrase, that God has visited His people, is present other places in Luke's Gospel. The first place is in Luke chapter 1. There's Zachariah's prophecy foretelling, specifically Christ, and it says, God has visited His people. He's raised up a horn of salvation from the line of David. And so God has visited his people and Christ soon to come. And then right here God has visited his people with Christ present doing a resurrection work. And then it says it one more time at the end of near the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 19. And Jesus is walking by Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says that there has been God's visitation has been in Jerusalem, but yet people do not see the truth. They have not responded to the truth of God. and um, so Jesus mourns because people didn't respond to God's visitation. So we see here in this text that God has visited His people and it's still true today that God visits His people and it is up to the people to respond and, and see the truth that has been presented in front of them. And so Luke is building this case, as um, if some of you were here for the beginning of this gospel as we've been working through it for a while now, but I'll remind you that Luke begins this gospel with saying, He writes to Theophilus that he may have certainty in the things that are being taught. And so these things that are being taught is the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ is being taught in this early church. And Luke is writing so we may have certainty. So Luke is building this case. We've seen in chapter 6 these great teachings from Christ. And right before this, we saw him heal the centurion's servant. Now they journeyed down to Nain. And Luke is building the case for, in particular in this text, the divinity of, of Jesus Christ. So Luke is working and working and working on this narrative, and there's a lot more in Luke to go to really give evidence to Christ's ministry, to his person and work. And we see here, maybe the most clearly for the first time in all of Luke's gospel, the the true divinity of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we work through this, uh, the nice thing about New Testament narrative or any biblical narrative is that it has a simple plot structure as we all probably learned in third grade that plot is setting, rising action, climax and falling action or some variation of that and all short stories in New Testament narrative have has the same plot line. So we'll just follow along with that plot line today knowing that plot and the structure of the text determines where The emphasis of the text is and so there's different things and different even characteristics or themes in here that might be something that would be worth preaching on but when we let the structure determine the emphasis of what the text is we'll see that it's pointing to this great resurrection even this greater response that God has visited his people so if you read with me in verse 11 we'll see um, Luke establish the setting so soon afterward he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And the first thing that you need to know about the city of Nain is there's not much to know about the city of Nain. (laughs) This is the only time in all of scripture that it is talked about. It's the only time. We don't really have any information. We don't know if it's mostly Jews, mostly Gentiles. We don't know hardly anything about Nain besides the fact that it is 25 miles southwest of Capernaum where Jesus just healed the centurion's servant. And that's about all that we have. And the unique thing about that and about most of the details in this text is that they all are very simple details and what I think that is all pointing to is the greater meaning and the greater significance that it's not some significant city and it's not a well-known widow or we don't even get the name of her or her son we don't hear anything about them the rest of the time but we do know that This is characteristic of Christ to have these great miracles. And we do know that He is divine, and we can believe that. And this text is emphasizing that and and showing us that that is the pinnacle of this whole passage. And so, all these details we're going to encounter are all similar in that they don't have great significance to the text because it's all pointing to what the greater climax of this narrative is. So, Nain, 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, they've journeyed. It's probably a day or two later after this previous healing, and the crowd goes with Jesus there. And so it's, it's a sequential event, but it's not immediate as we're reading this text. As you're reading through, it's, it doesn't happen right away. There's a substantial amount of time, and a substantial crowd that follows along with him. And as this, the rising action of the narrative builds, read with me in verses 12 and 13. It says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And right away we see Jesus' heart and his, this compassion that he shows to the widow and this care that he shows. He just enters the town and sees a woman weeping over her son who's being carried outside the gate, outside the town of Maine, to be Buried Their funeral procession, if you will. He sees her and he, he has compassion on her right away. And as some of you may know, some of you may not know, a, a widow, especially in this time, is a desperate economic... It, she's in a desperate economic state, especially now that it says her only son, the only son of his mother, has passed away. He's being carried out to be buried. And so she doesn't have a wife. Now she doesn't have a son. She has no man in her life to provide... For her, She is in a a desperate, desperate condition. So she's probably not only weeping over the loss of her son, but over just the state of her life in general. So she's in a a desperate, desperate condition. and, And Christ says, do not weep. And as we don't know much about the context of this passage, much about Nain, much about this woman, we can kind of assume, though, that she doesn't know who he is. And so the stranger, with a crowd following him, comes up to her, as she's walking her son out to be buried, and he says, do not weep. And I can only imagine that her initial response wasn't, oh, what a compassionate man. (laughs) She probably doesn't think that by someone telling her, do not weep, that this this is a good thing. She's probably like, why would you say that? If you're at your family member's funeral, and you're crying, and someone comes up to you, and he's like, don't cry. You say, what do you mean, don't cry? But we know that this is Jesus' compassionate heart because of what is to come, what what he's about to do. And this is the first essence of divinity and little taste of divinity that we see and that he knows what he's about to do, yet nobody else does. And he knows he's about to raise her son. He has compassion on her. She doesn't know why he said, do not cry. But he says, don't weep. He's about to work this wonderful, wonderful miracle. And... So, this compassion that Jesus shows is characteristic of him throughout all the Gospels, throughout all the New Testament texts. We see this compassionate heart that he has for, for the lost, for the hurting, for the widows, for the orphans, for the poor, for the hungry. It just all these people groups, time and time again, we see that Christ has compassion on them. And there are specific calls in Scripture to. For us to minister to widows and spe- specific people groups, and so it is tempting to take this and, and go with it in that direction and talk about Christ's compassion and talk about our call as Christians to, to minister to widows. But I think that's not the point of the text. and I think as we, if we look throughout Scripture and search where Christ has compassion on people. It is, there are specific people groups, but it is, it is a lot and a lot of people. And there are specific texts that would talk about ministering to widows. Um, but what's, what's even greater is, is the text of this parallels in Elijah that we'll see, or not in Elijah, in 1 Kings of Elijah that we'll see here shortly. But he has this compassion. And, and this is a text that a lot of people might read and think like the whole meaning of this text is Christ's compassionate heart. And... It's not entirely wrong that, to, to read this and see that Christ has this rich, compassionate heart that none of us can truly understand how compassionate, and merciful, and gracious He is. But even if we just pay attention to the simple structure of a text, this is, this is not the climax. This is not the pinnacle of the text. So we can't sit here for 40 minutes and talk about Christ's compassion. There, there's more work that is about to come, and there's far greater biblical truths in that. But don't... Let the structure of the text negate how significant Christ's compassion is to his people. And he also is the initiator of compassion. She doesn't see him and recognize him as the Christ and ask for him to have mercy on her. He is the initiator. And we'll even see he's the initiator of the resurrection, too. That there's no request of him to raise this, these bones back to life. That he just goes and initiates. And that is of Christ's character, too, is that he's not just compassionate. He's not just merciful and God, but he's an initiator of that and a pursuer of that in people. And so we see, as we build into the climax of this text, if you turn with me uh, to verse 14, we'll read verses 14 through 16. It says, then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This is the heart of the text, that God has visited his people. But we see here first that he went up and he touched the buyer. And some of your texts might have, or Bibles might have buyer, some might have coffin, some might have it translated something different. Um, In this time, it was basically... A wooden plank and an open casket where the body you can see the body is just being carried outside the city to be buried and so Jesus approaches this dead body and, and stops the whole funeral procession which is not common to for anyone to just come and stop a funeral procession in this time as it is uncommon now that even police block the roads for funeral, funeral processions to go on and so Christ comes up and he stops and he puts his hand on the buyer, and that is something that we can read and think of as just normal almost, and not really see the significance of it. But he walks into the middle of this great crowd in this procession, and he stops everybody. And then he says, I say to you, arise. And this text has a striking similarity to to first Kings chapter seventeen, and I won't make you turn there, I'll just give you a synopsis of what it is. But is the prophet Elijah raising to life a widow's son? And there are, there are many similarities in these two texts. There are both widows, both widows' sons, prophets meeting at the town gates, return of the son to the widow after the resurrection, and a recognition that the prophet is from God. But there's one huge difference in these texts, and this is the heart of this text, and this is why I think this is a widow in the text. Jesus could have raised anyone's son, but the reason it's a widow is to parallel this text, these strikingly similar texts from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But we see in 1 Kings 17 that Elijah pleads with the Lord and he cries out to God. He says, God, please raise these bones. Resurrect this child. And Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. And that statement is a major claim. To, to not have to ask for the Father to work through Him to bring these bones to life To just look at the body and say, I say to you, arise, is a major statement of Christ's divinity. It's a major sign and revelation of His divinity that He doesn't have to ask the Father to do the work, that He can do the same work. And we'll see as we continue on uh, text that Hebrews says that He is the exact imprint of His nature, that there's so many people in the church today, people outside the church today, trying to tell us and tell Christians that Christ wasn't fully God, that he was, he was a good moral sage or he had good teachings or he truly worked some wonders, but he was just the highest of all human beings. But this text asserts that Christ was fully God and fully man, that he was divine. And these two comparisons show us so clearly that Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, had to ask for God to work through him. And Christ says, I say to you, Arise! This is a major statement of divinity, and we must believe this as Christians. We must believe that Christ truly is divine, because one, that's what the church has always taught, but two, this is what Scripture says. If we are to believe in God and believe in who He is, we must believe in who He really was. We must believe in His real divinity. We must believe in the person and work that He has done. We must believe what Scripture says says about Christ. And this is asserting that Christ was fully man and also fully God. In this text in Luke, um, just, just previously in verse 13, it says, And when the Lord saw her, and this is the first time in all of Luke's gospel, as he's building this case for Christ, that he addresses Jesus as the Lord. Other people have called Jesus Lord. They've attributed characteristics of the Father to him. But as he's building this case and he just has these great teachings and has a great miracle in healing the servants, now he says, and the Lord. So Luke is building his case that people may have certainty. And he asserts it in this text, which is paired with the greatest miracle that could possibly happen in raising a dead body back to life. And Luke says, and when the Lord saw her. So it's an assertion of Christ's divinity and it's an assertion of his lordship permeating throughout the entirety of this text, that it is it is Christ, it is the divine Son of God who's doing the work here and now, in this text, and and the beautiful thing about this, it says, "Young man, I say to you, arise." And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And then Jesus gave him back to his mother. So we again see Christ's mercy on display, and that he could have told the man, "I just did this for you. You should follow me and tell everybody about what I did to you." But he gives him back to his mother. So Christ again has a compassionate, merciful heart for. These people. But this text is is strikingly similar to Ephesians 2, when the Apostle Paul talks about our spiritual state. And if you turn with me to Ephesians 2, we'll see um, this, this parallel in dead bones and a, and a dead spiritual life and what that looks like when it's made alive. Ephesians 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so we see this analogous example of this dead man being raised back to life. And Paul says, we are dead in the trespasses of our sins, but it's because of God that he brings us back to life. And it is Christ who has initiated the work here in bringing the dead man to life, and it's Christ and God that initiates the work in the hearts of sinners to bring them Back to life to, to show them the, the glory of the truth of his gospel. It says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. If we, like this boy, are dead in our trespasses, we don't have a chance to plead with the Lord first to do a work in our lives. He has to do the work first, and then we respond like the young man, and we began, or as it says, that he sat up and began to speak in turn. We begin to speak and we sing praises and we pray to God and we praise Him for the work that He has done. So it is of Christ's character, it is of God's character to be the initiator of these things, to be the initiator of compassion, to be the initiator of new life, to be the initiator of resurrection. This is the work that He does first and then we respond just as the young man responds. We respond in praise and glory and honor to the Lord for the work that He has done in our lives says that God has visited his people. This is the response of the crowd. We don't know which crowd. We know that Jesus had a crowd following him, and we know that the funeral had a crowd that met each other, so we don't know of the crowd who responds this way. But we do know, it says, that fear sees them all, and they glorify God. So it could be both crowds, the ones who have already seen Jesus do a miracle, the ones who probably have never seen Jesus do a miracle, never even heard of him, that fear sees them all, and, and this word fear, I think, is something we have to we wrestle with a lot in, in this culture because we see that Christ is compassionate, we see that he is merciful, and when we know those truths about Christ, it's hard to think that we should also have any sort of fear towards that. We should have love and enjoyment and, and delight in that, and, and I totally agree. But when people respond to a miracle like this and says that fear sees them all, we have to... Think about that for a second and realize that some, some people describe like the fear of God in, in the New Testament or even the Old Testament as a reverential awe. And that is, that is getting to the point. I think it still misses a little bit of the point. Um, when this word is translated in other passages in the New Testament, it is, it's fear or distress or terror are the three words. And I don't think that those three words describe a reverential awe at all times. I think there, there's a genuine response of, of fear or even terror to think that if you were at a funeral if we go back to that image and your loved one someone just comes to the casket and says I say to you arise and they stand up. I don't think our initial response is glory to God hallelujah. I think that our initial response is like what just happened? And this is what we see in this text too. It's, it's a, a fear or a terror because it is a divine work that we don't fully understand, and that is that is where the fear sets in, but we see it paired with that they glorified God, so this fear isn't a bad response, it's a recognition of of divine power, it's a recognition of the work that Christ has done that no mere man can do, and so fear sees them all and so when we we see this word, we must not just go straight to a, a reverence and awe, as, as that is definitely part of it. But there, there is more to it than that, and that we can't wrap our minds around the divine work of God and the divine work of Christ. And there is something that will strike fear or terror or distress into us if we witness something so great as a man who's being carried out to be buried being made alive. That, it, that is something that fear is not a bad or wrong response. is most likely the response that is going to happen from that. But then they glorified God. and They praise God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And us in 21st century Western Christianity today probably think, how did they say a great prophet has risen among them? This, this is Christ. This is Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity. Why do they say that a great prophet has risen among them. We know, we know better than that. But they didn't know better than that. And even if, especially if there's any Jewish crowd in the audience, they have, are familiar with the passage in 1 Kings 17, that this is not a totally unfamiliar, it is absolutely miraculous, but it's not totally unfamiliar for a prophet to come to be able to make a dead person raised back to life. So the response in this, this time of a great prophet has risen among us isn't, isn't a terrible response. Response, especially as there's more of Jesus' ministry to go on. He still has to die and he still has to resurrect. Um, So, the response of a great prophet is not terrible because they see that God has visited his people and they say that as well. They recognize that he is from God. But if that becomes our response today, that interpretation becomes far, far worse because we have the rest in the New Testament, we have the rest of church history to attest to the divinity and the glory of Christ, that we can't merely see him as a great prophet. We can't merely see him as this one who worked this great miracle that the Lord worked through him, and that was it. We must see this in our context today, that this is God the Son who has done this. is not a terrible response for them to say a great prophet has risen among us, but if that is our response now, it truly is a terrible response. We must assert the divinity of Christ because heresy has always tried to come at the person and work of Christ and is still present today in the church in the church and outside of the church people don't want to admit and concede to Christ's divinity but we must because this is what scripture tells us we must do if he really is the exact imprint of the nature of the father we must believe that and we must see that and we must stand firm on that it is not a mere conviction of the text it is the only truth of the text and John MacArthur goes as far to say and I would concur with him that if you don't believe this to be true that you will die in your sins that if we have to believe in God and believe in Christ for our salvation and we don't believe in who he actually is and who scripture says he is that we don't really believe in Christ and so I, I encourage you today to truly like search your minds and search your hearts and think, do you truly believe that Christ was fully God and fully man? It's, it's not an easy thing to, to take and to say, oh, that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense. But Scripture tells us that it is true, and so we must stand on Scripture, and we must not waver back and forth as it can be a conviction that, oh, some people, they might not think he's totally divine, but they think he was a really good prophet. That's what the people in his context said when they didn't know what was about to come, but we, we can see the resurrection and we can see the power of Christ taking our flesh and dying and then right, raising back to life to know that, oh, he was he was much more than a prophet. And so this cannot be our response today. Our response surely is God has visited his people, but it's not by prophet and it's not by just a miracle, but it's by his divine son that God has visited his people. And we see the falling action, if you will, if we continue to follow the structure of the plot of the story. And it says this in verse 17, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So they didn't, they didn't think Christ was divine. They thought he was a great prophet. And they continued talking about him, telling about this great work that he has done. and How much more so if we as Christians believe that Christ is a divine should spread the word and and let it go throughout all the surrounding country, all the surrounding cities around Indianapolis, all the surrounding people that we live around. That this is not some mere prophet. This is not some mere person that God uses to work. It It is God in the flesh. We must stand on that truth because it's not only discounting Scripture when we don't, but it's discounting the entire person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, do you believe that Christ is the divine Son of God? It is not an easy thing to believe in. We must see in Scripture that there's evidence for it. It is not it's an easy thing to have a blind faith and just accept that Christ is fully God and fully man. We must see that it is present here in Scripture. That one of the greatest prophets of all time had to ask the Lord to work through him. And Christ says, I say to you, arise. That is, that is a big statement Christ makes and he'll do it again and a chapter and a half later when he raises another person from the dead he doesn't ask for the father to work through him he does the work and that is consistent throughout his ministry and that what many of the prophets had to do to ask for the Lord to do through them Christ just does and doesn't need to ask for the father to do it through him because he has the exact imprint of the nature of the father to do it I want to close with Hebrews 1. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I can, I can read it. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-3 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is the Christ who is present in this text today, is the radiance of the glory of God, God in the flesh. The exact imprint of his nature is who we see in Luke 7, 1 through 11, that Christ was not some great prophet. He was much more than that. God God did visit his people, but not exactly as these people understood. He visited his people in his own presence, through Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is how he has visited these people. And the glorious thing As we get to read through the rest of Luke and the rest of these gospels, and we get to see that Christ emptied himself of this glorious goodness that he has to take on the sins of everyone, that he took on our sins. He emptied himself of this great glory, not of his divinity, but of, of the glory to humiliate himself, to humble himself, being obedient to death on a cross as the propitiation for our sins. Not that he had any reason to, to assert any more divinity. It was helpful for him to die and rise back from the dead. That, that's pretty clear divine work going on in his life. If this is enough in this text alone to show his divinity, he didn't need to just go to the cross for the sake of his own divinity. He went to the cross so that we don't have to try to show God our good works and say we tried really, really hard and we turn away from our sin and we say, God, look at look what I have to offer you when we have a mountain of sin behind us because God can see right through our good works to our mountain of sin. But we say, God, we know who Christ was. We know what he has done and we believe in who he is and he takes that on for us. It is a great truth. It is a relieving truth um, to think that we don't have to live up to the certain standard, this perfect standard, but we have belief in who Christ is and in His divine work here on the earth and His divine resurrection and how He reigns and rules for all of eternity. And this is what this text is saying: that we get to, we get to believe in this God, this God who is in the flesh and yet fully God, who has the power in Himself to make the dead rise without asking for the Creator of the universe to do it. He has the exact same power and that exact same nature. To do it himself. So, so I encourage you to realize, and, and sometimes in certain circles we run and we don't realize how problematic heresies of Christ are. We are. We're not even aware to some of them. And I think I might even be a little bit biased in that I am in a Christology class right now. And so I am also awakened to all these heresies that are present that I've never known before. But now it is my job to warn you if you aren't aware of the heresies that are present, even in the life of the church today, people don't want to say that Jesus is divine, but Scripture says Jesus is divine, and we must believe that. We must stand on that because we will face for the rest of our lives people trying to say that that is not true of Christ. But I remind you that this this is true. This is what Scripture says, and if we don't believe this, we don't believe in Christ. We don't believe in who He actually is. We believe in a skewed understanding but we don't believe in who He is. So we must stand on this truth, stand firm on this truth, see that Christ is divine. Christ is the Lord, as Luke calls Him, that He has the ability to raise the dead people make them live. He has the ability to take your dead heart and make it alive to see the goodness of His glory. And He has the power to die and to raise back from the dead because He's not a great prophet, because He's God incarnate, that God has visited His people, not by Great prophet, not by some, just a miracle, but by his divine son. Let's pray. Lord, we see this text, and we can read it and and know it and believe it to be true, but we ask that you help us to believe it, that uh, believing that a, a fully human was also fully God is not the easiest thing to grasp. So give us faith and give us determination to truly believe that this is what scripture says about you. Lord, we want to be faithful to the text. We want to be faithful to what you say of your son and of your people. And we thank you for this story that that paints this even analogy as to what our own deadness and our sins looks like, but we are made alive in Christ. We thank you that you are the great initiator of all things that we don't have to come to you first, Lord, but you come to us first. That is, that is a great blessing and a great gift. So we thank you for that today. We thank you for the work of Christ, the divine Son of God, uh, in, in this text and um, in our lives even today. So your name we pray. Amen. Amen.